You are listening to KMUZ, Turner. Visit our website at kmuz.org to see our complete program schedule and learn more about supporting KMUZ. Welcome to the Forum, our weekly public affairs program. We edit and rebroadcast recordings of lectures, interviews, and presentations of public interest to the Mid-Willamette Valley. Find our Facebook page, The Forum on KMUZ, for upcoming topics and to leave comments. Today's forum is a recording of Ethan Sherrigan, director of Portland State University's Population Research Center, reviewing the growth of our population since the young state of Oregon was created, what groups and ethnic types make up today's inhabitants, and what factors go into growth, and what that all means for government, schools, home building, and more for the state's future. Hello, I'm Ron Ekus, president of Salem City Club. I'm glad that you can join us today for the beginning of our 21, 2021, and 2022 program series in what will be our 55th year. We had hoped to be able to start the year with in-person programs, but due to the ongoing pandemic, we will be continuing with our presentation of virtual programs. However, our commitment to the City Club mission remains the same. That's to provide nonpartisan, civil discourse on important civic issues. We will be presenting programs every two weeks this fall. We hope you will sign up and join us. You can visit SalemCityClub.com for more information and to register. Thank you to our members, volunteers, and friends who continue to support Salem City Club. Your memberships and donations enable us to continue presenting these programs. Thanks as well to Spire Management for the association services they provide. In addition, Salem City Club also depends on the generous support of our supporting business partners, KMUZ Community Radio, Eugene Fobert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction, Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home, and Busy Bees Real Estate. And now today's program lead, Russ Beaton, will introduce our speaker. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. Welcome to City Club members and guests to the initial program of our 21-22 program year. Today, we recognize the fact that it's been a dynamic decade for Oregon. And with the receipt of the census data, we're going to get some expert help in taking a look at our recent situation demographically, population-wise, economically culturally, politically, almost any way you can look at it here in Oregon. I'd like to, for a moment, though, share with you a little background, since one of the key demographic issues in Oregon, and one that the City Club has addressed before and will undoubtedly do in the future, is what's known as the urban-rural divide. I'm going to read you a little quote here from the Oregonian. Uh, who believe that the wealth, and I quote, of eastern and western Oregon, eastern Washington and Idaho will pour into the city's expanding clasp, bringing a larger share of commercial profit and substantial wealth to the city. This little squib from the Oregonian was in a very celebratory New Year's issue in 1888. I would read you another little clip from about that time. It's from the Jacksonville Democratic Times in Medford. 
and it referred to farmers protesting railroad and flour mill monopoly, inequitable taxes, the low prices they received for their orchard crops. And their quote, this is a struggle of the people against plutocracy. That quote is from 1891. So demographic stress in Oregon is certainly no uh, stranger. And today we have fortunately some expert help in addressing that question. The um, Population Research Center at, located at Portland State University has been there since 1956. And since 1985 has, has been the uh, official Census Bureau repository and connection for the, the US Census. Portland State offers the only demographic studies certificate in Oregon. And the new director, new I say, he's been in, in the position for a little over a year now. Dr. Ethan Sherrigan is with us today. He has served all over the world. Ethan uh, has his doctorate in demography from the University of Pennsylvania. And he comes to us most recently as the formerly assistant chief of the California Demographic Research Unit. Ethan says he loves teaching and being here in, in Portland but his favorite position was at the Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in Luxembourg, Austria. They were located in a former Habsburg summer palace. So Ethan, welcome to Oregon. I hope you've been able to find adequate housing in Portland, but the, uh, the market for palaces is, is very limited. Thank you very much. I was going to say, our, our, we're very pleased with where we landed, but it, it is not a, a Habsburg palace. <laughs> It's <laughs> very, very pleased to be here, and, and thank you to, to President Ekis, and, and thank you to you, Russ, uh, for the invitation to speak at the inaugural session of the Salem City Club. Uh, it's my pleasure to talk to you today about the outcome of the 2020 census, um, what we learned, why it matters, and how it uh, interacts with uh, redistricting. I'll be going over these four broad categories uh, today. I'll, I'll give you a summary of population growth in the state, where we're at now. Um, I'll also talk a little bit about uh, what, what we learned in the 2020 census for Oregon statewide, as well as for the Salem metro area. And I'll connect you with how you can find out more about other uh, counties and cities in the state. And I'll also talk a little bit about the other sources of demographic data that tell us about how the state is doing uh, other than the decennial census. And then finally, I'll talk about um, how we can use census data to better understand the uh, redistricting proposals uh, put forward by the legislature last week. So as everyone should know by now, um, Oregon is at 4.2 million people. We have had a doubling of population since 1970, over 50 years, although when you look at the history of the state's population growth, that's actually uh, historically, that's a deceleration in the growth rate. The first doubling of population we had between 1900 and 1930 just took 30 years. The one after that, 1930 to 1970, took another 40 years for the population to double. And again, since 1970 to 2020 is now 50 years. So to kind of translate that into what it means in terms of a growth rate, so our most recent growth rate in uh, 2010 to 2020, which we learned when we got the 2020 census result, was about 1% per year or 40,000 people per year net gain. And I thought it was interesting. One of the things that you can learn from this graph is that over time, all of the average growth rate of a US state has declined. 
uh, from about 2% per year in 1910 to um, I think that the most recent US growth rate was 0.7% per year for the nation as a whole in the past decade. And what you can also see is that as a state's population grows, it, the growth rate tends to decline too. When we were, were a younger country, states were smaller, there was a broad range of growth rates. There were some states growing as much as 8% per year. And now that's pretty much unheard of. So Oregon had this extremely high growth rate in the 1940s, which shows up in the 1950 census, which we know was due to the completion of Bonneville Dam, the end of World War II, prompted booming growth. And again, uh, 1980 saw the previous decade with really high growth, a high watermark for the timber industry in the 1970s. And then Oregon in the 1980s had a very low growth rate as the national recession hit very hard and, and uh, timber prices fell by over, I think by, by almost 50%. So rather than look at growth rates, let's see um, how Oregon grew compared to some of the other states around us. I've here indexed the population size in 2010 to equal 100%. And then cumulatively over the decade, um, tracked how much the state has grown compared to uh, other states in the nation as a whole. So since 2010, the fastest growing states have all been in the West. Utah was the fastest growing state over the decade, but Idaho and Arizona were close and on its heels. Washington had a higher growth rate, although Oregon has kept pace in the first part of the decade. But then it, we've grown faster than California and faster, significantly faster than the nation as a whole. So we update those population estimates every year based on something called a balancing equation. The population today is the population that last year, less the deaths that occurred, plus births, and then plus and minus net migrants that came over the course of the past year. And we track um, that population change since the last decennial census. So we'll be updating all of our benchmarks to 2020 and tracking change since the 2020 census over the next decade until we get the 2030 census. So this graph shows those components broken out separately. The total height of the bar, uh, which I've, I've actually the, the, the line plot here tracks the net number of people added to the state over the decade. As I mentioned, the average since 2010 has been about 40,000 people, but it varies a lot from year to year. And that's a function of births, deaths, and net migrants. Births are plotted in blue. Um, they have been a, a stable and important source of population growth, but in recent years, the number of births and the number of deaths have been balancing out to around zero. And in fact, some of you may have read that over the last year, deaths exceeded births in Oregon for the first time in, in the state's history, recorded history. So now whether or not Oregon is going to have population growth is going to depend entirely on whether there's, it's going to attract more in-migrants than out-migrants. And that migration has been very significant in most years as a contributor to growth, but there are some notable exceptions to that pattern. Uh, in the 1980s, I mentioned the national recession hit uh, states that depended on natural resources like Oregon more than others. So during the, those years, 
there was net migration represented in the orange bars were actually negative, contributed negatively to the state's growth. And we've had um, ups and downs since the last recession was a low point for net migration to Oregon, 2009-10. Uh, but since that time, it was, was up in the mid-2010s. Uh, and it's been kind of on its way down again in recent years. We don't have COVID-19 showing up here um, yet. That's going to be in the next set of bars that we add. But um, we expect there that net migration was down between 2020 and 2021, um, and, and that uh, that's again exceeded births. So the next set of slides, I'm going to talk about the 2020 census. The census has really been an interesting and important source of technological innovation, and it's, it's changed with the times. Um, just pointing out that in 1960 was the first time that most people responded to the census by a mail out form where they filled out their answers and mailed it back and then they were read by computer, as opposed to having an enumerator come to your door and uh, collect answers to the questions. So another big uh, technological landmark was the 2020 census it was the first one that uh, was primarily um, households were responded to invited to respond uh, online. Some other minor changes that happened in 2020 um, include there uh, a new combined write-in question that asked um, race and ancestry at the same time and collected up to six uh, responses for ancestry as opposed to um, two or three at most in the previous censuses. It also was the first time that um, households were allowed to identify explicitly same-sex partners and households Previously, those would have been uh, determined by the response to the, to the sex question and to the relationship question, although there's a huge amount of error there. Um, people accidentally marking the wrong box is actually more common. So notably, the citizenship question wasn't on the 2020 census. That was one thing I think that last time when, when Charles spoke to you was a, a question mark. So I've included some questions uh, or some data here from our statewide profile from the 2020 census available on our website at PRC. Dot e, or pdx.edu slash PRC. Um, the census includes a lot of valuable information on number of households, on home ownership, ancestry, um, age and sex of the population. But so far, we don't have all of the data from the 2020 census. We just have what's called the PL94-171 redistricting data file. And that focuses on um, equity for redistricting. So it includes a great amount of detail on race and ethnicity of the population. And there are a lot of ways uh, to tabulate that race and ethnic information. So I've presented two of them here and in our, our fact sheets. One is to tabulate race ethnicity alone. So to say, um, if we wanna classify the population exclusively into one category or another, um, and then another way to tabulate is called race alone or in combination. So in that case, people could be counted multiple times. If somebody reported, for example, um, that they were multiple race in the, the alone uh, system, they would be counted as someone who was two or more races. But in the alone or in combination, they would actually be counted twice, once with each race group that they identified with. So that's why uh, the total races tallied number is there and it's higher than the total population. If we double count everyone who reported multiple race, we actually get 4.7 million um, individuals 
times the number of races they identified as. Now, one of the big headlines from the 2020 census nationally was the increase in the percentage of the population that chose some other race only and kind of rejecting the categories that were provided. Um, now that, while still a relatively small percentage of the population or percentage of the total population grew by over 300% in the last decade. Also interesting, the, the multi-race population more than doubled and now over 10% or, of Oregonians report two or more races. Much of the growth in the multiracial population was accounted for by the population that chose white in combination with Asian or American Indian or other race. And those kind of top three categories of the multi-race population are highlighted in these rows in the, in the middle. In, in total, 28% of Oregonians reported being um, black, indigenous, or another person of color. And actually, if we look at the population under 18, that figure rises to over 40%. I haven't shown the breakdowns here by over or under 18, but that's the only age category breakdown we get in the redistricting data file. Other notable uh, fast growing populations, um, the Hispanic population is pretty large and grew by over 30%. Um, Asian grew by almost 40%. Um, and one of the interesting things we see is that far fewer of uh, Hispanic persons reported a white race alone. Uh, and many more reported other or white plus other. And that's really been driving some of the dynamics we see when we look at the change in the size of the population that reports white. Another headline result that Russ um, touched on when he talked about the, the urban rural differences um, was the fact that the, the US experienced you know, its lowest overall population growth rate. And in fact, nationally, over half of counties lost population. At the same time, over 80% of cities, metropolitan areas grew. So put two and two together, counties that declined tended to be rural counties. But one of the interesting things that we found is that Oregon's rural counties remained steady. Um, they neither grew or de declined much in population. In fact, there was only one county that, that had declined, that's Grant County, and, and it was about 3% decline, not very significant. Um, Marion County grew by about 10%, uh, added 30,000 people, and it's now at around 345,000 in 2020. Polk actually grew faster than Marion County, it grew 16%, um, but because it's a smaller county that actually translates to fewer people added, uh, about 12,000. Uh, so Polk ended it the, the decade at 87,000. And now um, Salem and Eugene are actually neck and neck still for Oregon's second largest city. So Eugene narrowly edged out Salem, uh, 176,000 instead of 175,000, um, but both added about uh, 20,000 new residents over the decade. Also kind of interesting uh, fact that uh, Kaiser and, and Monmouth uh, were among the most densely populated cities in Oregon, both had over 5,000 people per square mile. So in addition to state and county profiles, um, we've published some profiles for uh, cities and uh, downloadable data for cities and profiles for metropolitan areas. So the census defines a metropolitan area as um, at, the, at the level of a county, a county that has a kind of a critical mass of people who live in, in urbanized uh, census tracts 
and uh, as well as counties where a significant number of people um, commute to work in those urbanized areas. So the Salem metropolitan area is defined um, using Census Bureau data, but it's actually defined by the Federal Office of Man Management and Budget um, as uh, Marion plus Polk counties. Um, and the metropolitan area added population faster than it added housing. So that resulted in a slightly larger average household size. And like Oregon statewide, um, the child population under 18, it barely moved. Um, that means most of the growth was in the adult population. And the vacancy rate also um, dropped from 6.6% to 4.7%. Nationally, we saw metro areas, the vacancy rates dropped as again, population growth was really robust in the cities. And then I've also put the same table that I showed for the state, the, the race and ethnicity growth, uh, growth but this is uh, again for the Salem metro area where the fast growing group was some other race, non-Hispanic, same as we saw statewide. Although the total number of people who, who identify that way is, is still small, just half a percent. So um, the Asian population, Black or African-American and Pacific Islanders um, all grew by 25% or more, but still uh, remain at about one to 2% of the total population of the metro area. On the other hand, the Hispanic population um, grew by 26% to 108,000 people. And it's interesting to, again, see here, there was a, a significant decline in the number of people um, that identified as Hispanic, uh, but not uh, a decline in the number of people who identified as Hispanic and white race. And instead, there was a big leap in the number of people who identified as another race or Hispanic and American Indian, especially multiple races, white plus other or white plus American Indian. So again, to drive home that point, it really matters how we report race. And one person could take away and, and say that the, the white population essentially was unchanged at 278,000 people. But another could look at how many people identified as white plus another race and could say that actually the white population increased by 8% to 350,000 people. So you'll see, I, I guarantee you're, you, you have or will see a lot of confusion or conflicting information um, when reporting statistics. And that's something to look out for. So the primary purpose of the 2020 census, uh, census or the decennial census, since its inception, has been to reapportion the US Congress. And as we predicted, uh, Oregon picked up a seat, will now have six representatives in Congress and the state legislature, uh, which is responsible for approving new district boundaries, has published some initial proposals uh, on September 3rd. Uh, the next big release, next big thing coming up for census data is the release of this redistricting file that I've shown results from in what I'm calling a more modern format. So if you wanted to use the, the redistricting file, you wanted to look at that today yourself, um, it actually would be kind of an undertaking. It's released in a very, in a, in, in a what's called a legacy format as, as raw text files. And it's been somewhat complicated to tabulate, but the good news is that on September 16th, um, you'll just have, you can visit data.census.gov and tabulate the redistricting data yourself in a very easy to use um, interface. And a few other things will be coming uh, down the pipeline next year. Sometime in 2022, 
will receive these additional data, uh, demographic profiles of uh, cities, counties, and states that include additional information about the age and sex structure of the population, uh, and demographic and housing characteristics files, which will give us information on, for example, multi-generational households, um, and uh, it will include down to neighborhood levels. Another kind of interesting thing that will be happening um, is that around in 2023, the 100% results of the 1950 census will enter the public domain. Uh, and that's an invaluable tool for people who do uh, social research or genealogical research that you can um, look at the, the complete uh, body of uh, returns to the 1950 census. But more immediately over the next couple of weeks, the legislature will be looking at public comments on its boundaries. And if there's time at the end of the talk, I'll talk a little bit more about those proposals and how you can, can use census data to look at them. But I wanted to leave some time too to, to look at uh, other important sources of demographic data about Oregon besides the decennial census. And um, the key one for demographers is the American Community Survey. So it has taken the place of the census long form since 2010, and it reaches approximately 2% of the population each year and includes just a great amount of detail about demographics, health, income um, of from the national level down to neighborhood levels. And at the neighborhood level, we rely on a pooled sample across years. So we'd be looking at a five-year average from 2015 to 2019 for the next data sets. So one of the things we can look at, for example, in the ACS that we, we don't get uh, in the decennial census is migration. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's now the main factor that determines whether and where Oregon's population will grow. Uh, residents who relocate from California get a lot of attention in the media. Um, most recently, I, I moved from, uh, from California to Oregon, although um, it's, a, it's a big feature in our popular culture. Um, and while California is the single uh, top source, single source of, of migrants to Oregon, actually only about a quarter of uh, Oregon in migrants are from California. So the other Pacific, U.S. Pacific region states, which include Washington, Idaho, Nevada, Alaska, and Hawaii, um, are also really important. But the share has interesting patterns, how it varies across the state. So for example, two out of five movers in Southwest Oregon or Deschutes County um, come, came from California. Um, and we can also look where and see, we can see whether these have been persistent trends by looking at the place of birth of the population in different regions of Oregon. So the most common uh, place of birth uh, for, for residents of Oregon is Oregon, um, but only the Willamette Valley region um, actually has a majority. Southwest Oregon actually seems to have a long history of migration exchange with California. It's nothing new. So 24% of residents there um, were actually born in, uh, across the state border to the south. And another one of the notable differences uh, between these two tables is that the, the share of in-migrants from Mexico uh, or Central America is lower than the share of the overall population by place of birth. So what that says um, you know, to, to me is that migration from those countries is tapering off uh, compared to where it's been historically. It's lower than it's been historically. And so actually, that's actually borne out by other studies that have looked uh, nationally and regionally at US-Mexico migration and um, have found that there's actually been a significant return amount of return migration uh, from the US uh, to Mexico over the past decade and a decline in new in-migration. So we saw these really interesting new statistics on race for the population. 
And I thought it um, would be useful to talk about how the race and ethnicity of the population varies as a function of the age. So here you have a, a, a bar graph where on the left, we're looking at the zero to four year olds. And on the far right, we're looking at people 90 and over. And what you see is a stacked graph where um, the non-Hispanic white population is in, in one color and then another color on top represents um, all other uh, race or ethnic identities. And what stands out immediately, of course, is that the, the, the percentage that is um, black, indigenous, or person of color is much higher for the, the younger groups. So earlier I mentioned 40% of people under 18 um, did not report um, non-Hispanic white. Um, but then as you look at the older population, it's a different profile. So there really is a, a big generational um, change uh, occurring here. You're tuned to All Volunteer Community Radio KMUZ. Turner, broadcasting to the Mid-Willamette Valley on 88.5 and 100.7 FM. This is our weekly public affairs program, The Forum. I'm Forum producer Stella Schaffer. Oregon's population doubled in only three decades between the turn of the last century and the year 1930. It doubled again in the four decades from 1930 to 70. Then, from 1970 to the present, it doubled again in a half century, arriving at our current population of right around 4.2 million people. Since 2010, the fastest-growing states in the U.S. have been in the West. It wasn't just having kids, as the increase showed the most among adults. And cities grew faster than Oregon's rural areas. Dr. Ethan Sherrigan is the new director of Portland State University's Population Research Center. And in addition to this presentation, you'll be able to see more data as it's reviewed and added at the Population Center's website, pdx.edu slash prc. We can also do um, much more um, with our demographic data. Uh, well, we, we use other demographic data besides the ACS. Uh, another important source are the vital statistics published by the Oregon Health Authority. Um, we use those to calculate life expectancy and fertility rates that are, are very important inputs to population projections. So here I've plotted the life expectancy at birth. So if someone was born today uh, and they experienced the uh, mortality rates that are existing in the population today for each specific age group, um, they could expect uh, to live um, uh, 79.7 uh, years. And this was met, uh, estimated before COVID. And COVID will be a shock, but we'll see how we recover um, afterwards. And I didn't plot it, but it's actually a little different to, um, for females as for males. So it was about 82 years for females and 77 years for males. Um, life expectancy is, is an indicator of kind of the general overall health status uh, of the population. And it's also useful to anticipate the pace of population aging. And for projections, the number of deaths per year so we can use that balancing equation to, to, to project future population growth. In the US, it's really mostly driven by mortality changes at, at older ages, uh, 50 and up. 
I mentioned here too that that uh, for those of you who have been kind of tracking these stories, that it's been kind of stagnant uh, since 2010. That's something we've seen nationally that there hasn't been much improvement. Uh, in fact, year to year, so there have been some years of declines uh, in life expectancy since 2010. So the next uh, figure is uh, the total fertility rate. It's useful when, uh, for the same reasons, we want to consider the likely future number of births and the the pace of population growth. The U.S. rate is about 1.7 children per woman. Um, nearly all uh, of the you know OECD countries or and, and many other middle-income countries uh, are also a similar level of total fertility rate. Um, Oregon is just at 1.5 children per woman in the most recent data. So. Um, that's that's below the national average, and that does mean that in the long run, the population would decline if these rates hold steady. I think for a very long time, there was the expectation that levels below replacement, meaning below 2 or 2.1, uh, were unsustainable. But, you know, in the early two, 2010s, our, our expectations of that began to change, and we've seen the persistence of, of long, long-run low fertility rates. It has many ramifications for, for public policy, um, both opportunities and challenges. I think we've, we've um, uh, all followed the discussions of uh, you know, climate change and the, the challenges to reducing our, our emissions and, and the difficulty of balancing population growth and economic growth uh, with uh, meeting, um, uh, meeting goals. Uh, and so that, this is actually one uh, interesting area of, of opportunity where um, the, uh, uh, a stable uh, population or uh, declining birth rate um, means that we can focus on on issues uh, such as uh, quality of life, but it also represents challenges because a, a lot of our public policies uh, expect um, continued population growth. You know, Social Security is a good example of one where um, the uh, the the payouts depend on um, receipts from the the labor force, and so in a situation where uh, population growth is going to be steady or declining, that becomes very difficult to sustain as, as um, more and more workers are, are required to um, support an aging population. But um, with a few minutes left, I, I wanted to um, revisit that subject of redistricting again and talk about how it relates to the census. So I want to share with you a data visualization that uh, PRC has just completed. It consists of a map of the total population. Um, the different colors uh, in this graph represent uh, different race ethnicity groups. And um, we can juxtapose that. Uh, this figure juxta uh, has overlaid state, uh, current state house districts um, in those white boundaries that you see. And I put here to the, the total populations in those boundaries as the 2020 census. And we can see that they're significantly out of balance. Uh, District 19, uh, and 20 have about 75,000 people, whereas 21 has only about 70,000. So what has to be done after the census is to redraw those boundaries um, so that they're, pro they're approximately equal. And the legislature has proposed uh, various plans. Um, I've shown here what's called Plan A. That's the uh, Senate committee plan, a bipartisan Senate committee plan. You'll also find B and, and C on our, our visualization, or if you visit the legislature's redistricting page, and those will be produced by the, the state house. Uh, and it shows that, that the, the proposals do balance uh, districts by population. 
So District 20 sheds some population. Um, it moves some of the South Gateway uh, into District 19. And District 19 then really contracts a lot. District 19 sheds Turner and Almsville. Um, and then District 21 now links Kaiser and Salem. Uh, it's mostly unchanged, but it does add uh, more of the population that lives along Route 99 between Salem and Kaiser. And here I've, I've zoomed in. I know it's just gonna be hard to read, so I invite you to, to visit um, the website and explore it yourself. Um, it'd be hard to read, but I've taken a slice out of uh, this map to show in the Four Corners neighborhood to really show the highlight the power of the decennial census uh, to understand how uh, population can give us powerful insights into these proposals. So the 2020 census we can use to map population down to individual blocks and uh, when we look at, uh, on, on our visualization, we've actually used information about uh, where buildings are on those blocks to randomly allocate population within the block into buildings on the block. So uh, if you look up your own house, hopefully you, know, you won't find exactly the same information. We haven't put any, any individual address uh, information into our visualization, although it may look like it because we've randomly allocated the population from the census into where we think um, the, the, the housing is on, the, on those blocks. And just to show, um, you know, the, the white lines again are the current uh, boundaries and the red lines are from one particular proposal, which I haven't uh, highlighted for any other reason um, other than to show that how the block level data can give us insights. But what we see is that there's a segment here um, northeast of the, of the four corners that's currently a part of District 21. Um, and that's slated to move to District 17, which most, mostly includes areas east of Salem. So uh, thanks again, that, that's, that's uh, what I wanted to talk with you about today. Um, I've put some links up here where you can, uh, and actually maybe I'll see if I can put those in the chat when we, when we begin the Q&A so that uh, folks can, can visit and find both our 2020 uh, census data extracts as well as our uh, area profiles and, and the, uh, the interactive version of the uh, population map um, that I've shown these kind of static figures from. And I understand we have time for Q&A, so I will I'll return it to my hosts. Thank you again very much. Hello there, uh, I'm Hans West. I'm, I'm with uh, Programs Committee and Salem City Club. And I will be trying to guide the question and answer um, session here. Uh, folks, there are no questions yet. So please get them in if you want them dealt with. Um, and then I would, um, I have a couple. Uh, I would ask the attendees, I mean, excuse me, the panelists also to consider some questions because I don't see any yet. Oh, here we go. I think we know. That might be me. I just posted the, the links in the, uh, in the chat for folks. Well, okay. So yes, we do indeed have one. And do we have, this is from Neil, I believe, yes. Do we have any information about the economic or age profile of in-migration? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Yes, um, we do specifically for, for in-migration. Um, we can look both at, at uh, foreign in-migration. So people who report uh, on the American Community Survey that they lived abroad last year. Um, as well as people who lived in other states last year. 
and uh, we, we can look at uh, detailed information by household. Um, we can look at, you know, um, what industry they're working in, what occupation. We can look at their education level, their household composition and income. So a really rich uh, variety of, of, of data for, for migrants, uh, both to and from the state. The exception, of course, is people who, who move abroad uh, from Oregon. That's historically been a pretty small uh, number, but it is, uh, you know, as the, the, the foreign-born population of the United States grows, um, it is becoming a more important uh, source, but that's a bit of a tangent. So um, the, the best way to access those data um, would be, you can, you can always write to us at PRC. Our, our email is askprc at pdx.edu, uh, but you can also visit uh, data.census.gov uh, to learn uh, a lot more. Um, all of the, the ACS data are available through that website. Okay, <clears throat> we have a um, raised hand here. Now, let me just explain for those of you who have raised your hand, um, I will unmute you from this end and you need to unmute yourself also from your end. There should be an unmute function. Um, so Jean, uh, here, let me allow you to talk. Please uh, tell us your question. Hello, Jean. Are you able to? There we go. Oh, thank you. Um, could you discuss the Democrats versus Republicans in, in terms of your data, Ethan? And getting the extra house seat. For the extra house seat, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so the the so the, there's one extra congressional seat. That's that's the one. Um, the number of state legislative seats for the both the state house and the state senate uh, will remain the same, um, but it's we will be sending one more delegate to the U.S. Congress, and that's where the proposals. You know, they as you might expect, they they differ pretty significantly. So, um, you know, I I don't uh, I can't offer any opinions uh, on those those proposals, but I do encourage you to take a look at them. I think that. Um, there, there's a, a, a public uh, comment process, uh, which you can find if you visit the legislature's site. And I think it is you know, important for people who, who do plan to, to, uh, to testify, um, to, to have, have reviewed the borders and, and, and kind of, I encourage you all to look at your neighborhoods and kind of see where the, where the plans uh, put you. Um, they, they differ very significantly. Um, but I, I, yeah, unfortunately, I, I can't say you know uh, which one uh, has um, more integrity. I think that's that's more of a political question than a demographic question. And and I know you have a guest coming up. I think in in, in November um, who will be really excellent uh, to to answer that for you. But um, I know that'll be after the after we're hoping to have the boundaries drawn. Thank right. you. Thank you. There. Okay. Uh, next, we will take a. Question and answer here from Eileen Kay. Uh, and she asks, is it true that the last chance for written redistricting comments is Monday at 8.30? Ah, that's a, a great question. So the, the information you'll find, um, the schedules, uh, there's schedules for people depending on where you currently live, which district, and you can find that at oregonlegislature.gov slash redistricting. Um, I believe that the, uh, the, the, the uh, ability to submit alternative proposals is over, but I do think that there are still um, the op opportunity to provide um, uh, written or, or, or in-person testimony. 
I think the deadline to submit that testimony um, is September 13th. That's right. Um, by, by the end of the day, I forget exactly what time. I'm, I think by, I would say probably by the evening of, evening of September the 13th, you want to make sure you've submitted your, your letter or participated in one of the public hearings. Uh, I think that there are going to be hearings. Uh, I think the 13th is maybe the last hearing. There may actually be hearings uh, today, depending on uh, which district. Um, I think there'll be, there'll be hearings at 1 p.m. and 5.30 p.m., but you'll have to visit um, the legislature's site to see if that applies to, to your district. Okay, thank you. Um, here's one from uh, Kasia Quillanen. Uh, is there any difference between male and female population numbers, particularly with internet or out migration? What effect would any change have on Oregon's economics? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we, we see that migration tends to be balanced um, by uh, by sex, so you know uh, there are there are sometimes exceptions. So you do if you find, for example, a heavily heavily agricultural county, you may see that um, a lot of the migration is skewed towards um, um, males, a working age. Um, but in general, if that that would be tend to be seasonal migration that would kind of come and go. Um, the, the, the long-term migration does tend to be balanced by sex, um, but by age, it's actually definitely not balanced, right? We know that um, migrants tend to be concentrated in uh, early working ages. So there's, for, for, for areas that have a university near them, of course, there's a big spike in, in, my, in, in and out migration around college ages. Um, but uh, for most counties, uh, the most migrants come between ages you know, early 20s uh, to early 30s and um, really uh, tend to, to move into an area to join the labor force. And then there's, there's a little bit of a peak in uh, migration right around uh, age 65 as people are making decisions um, to relocate uh, for retirement. That tends to be much smaller magnitude. Thank you. Um, here's one from Victor Dodier. The population of rural Oregon has been aging in place for some time. Is this trend continuing? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I pointed out that Oregon has avoided the fate of, of a lot of other uh, rural parts of the U.S. And, and that we have not had decline in our uh, rural counties. But um, if you look at the age distributions um, by urban or rural, you're right that um, uh, you know our, our rural counties are skewed towards older ages. Not always the case um, though, but uh, I think over the next decade, there will be a bit of a reckoning. We don't know what's going to happen um, in terms of whether or not as that population ages out, there's going to be replacement uh, migration in. Um, I mean, there is better housing availability. So it's really a question of, uh, you know, the, the economic viability for uh, a family to families to, to move to those places. And uh, we have, you know, possibly seen one of the uh, uh, migration because of uh, remote work uh, is, is kind of bolstering the, the prospects, maybe look good for those places better than they did a couple of years ago. But it is still a question mark. Um, I will say that, yeah, if the, if the population, if, if not from migration, if the, the population over the next decade is driven by the current population there, then we will see a, a lot of depopulation of counties over the next decade. Thank you. 
Uh, Kathy Lincoln has one in the chat session uh, section. I understand that the population projections for Salem and Kaiser are lower than anticipated before the census results were available. How much lower did those projections turn out to be uh, percentage wise or actually number wise? Thanks for that question. Uh, the, the challenge is that our, our forecast program um, runs on a four-year cycle. So it's been quite a, a long time since uh, we, we did um, uh, uh, projections for those areas. And those were just updated um, at Region 4 uh, this past year. So um, we, we didn't have uh, the uh, 2020 census data at the time we had to go forward. We had the state apportionment totals. but um, I think that we, I, I don't think, you know, I, I have to get back to you exactly on, on how, wh what the level of error was um, for the jump off point, you know, for what we said in 2020 versus what the actual number turned out to be. But, you know, um, statewide, I know that our estimates were actually only off by half a percent. So I, I don't think that was a big source of error. Um, uh, for the projections, I think if you look at our our numbers for 2020 in uh, in our projections for for Salem and Kaiser, they're going to be pretty close to uh, what we see for the totals in the census. And um, yeah, more specifically than that, I think um, I think we should yeah let, let's uh, exchange some emails. Uh, here's another one from Cindy Condon. What are the primary factors other than about equal population that are considered for the purpose of setting district boundaries? Sure. So th that's uh, specified in, in uh, ORS and the, the Oregon Revised Statutes. And um, I think the other key one is that um, they're not to be drawn to the benefit of one party or another, and they're not to divide communities of interest. So the difficulty, of course, is to say, well, what is a community of interest? Um, you know, the census data themselves only include information on race, ethnicity. So that may end up driving the discussion about what re represents a community of interest. We also have, you know, this rich contextual data from the American Community Survey on, you know, language, um, economic situation. Those are also considerations that I think, you know, need to be taken into account when we're talking about communities of interest but it's not really defined in the statute. So um, that's why it's left open to interpretation. Yeah, here's uh, several interesting ones here. Aside from redistricting, what do you think the biggest impact of the 2020 census will be for Oregon? Yeah, I have to, I have to put on, take off my demographer hat, you know, for a minute, because I think, you know, because we track these um, population dynamics um, every year and update our expectations that um, there weren't, a whole lot of surprises. Um, I think that the, the big thing that stood out to me was the way in which um, the, the race and ethnicity distribution of the population was quite different than what we, what we see every year in the American Community Survey. And, and so that um, really represents something that we should, should really try and understand because um, when we're trying to, to look at the future population, uh, we'd also like to know, well, what, what could the race and ethnic makeup of the state be in the coming decades? And so we'll have to really spend some time, I think, processing um, their, uh, how people responded to that question, how that question might change in the future. Um, but I think it actually uh, shows that the, the state uh, has been kind of navigating the, the times pretty well. Uh, 
that you know we've been able to maintain our our rural counties uh, stable populations that the state's overall growing pretty well but not so fast that it's it's um, putting kind of an unbearable pressure on um, on housing. So we we also look at the pace of housing construction versus population, and that's that's been a challenge for for almost every uh, state. But I think Oregon has weathered that pretty well. We didn't see pressure um, on on household sizes that people are really kind of having to double up or things like that. Um, so I think it's overall it's it's a it's a you know if it was a a barometer of the state's demographic health, I think it looks good. Although I think there are things we have to watch that that didn't come out of the census, which are are mainly those things that are kind of highlighted in the vital statistics. I think we're concerned about that stagnation in life expectancy. That's something I think we all agree. We, we want people to be able to live a long, healthy life. That's a social goal. Uh, and then also fertility rates. So, you know, it, like I said, it has opportunities and challenges, but the fact that it's so low um, is something that I think has yet to, to really be appreciated in, in policy planning. Here we have just a minute left. What are the major changes you have seen in the population of rural Oregon? I'm John Hofer. You, you don't have a lot of time, so if you can think of something. Yeah, I think rather than try and, and sum everything up, um, I, I really encourage people to look um, at, at our, our profiles uh, for, for each of those counties and to look at our, our population mapper. Uh, you know, that I think that the, the census 2020 gives us a, a good sense of, of what's going on with, with housing and total population and race ethnicity so far. We'll learn more next year when we start to get the age structure. So I think that we, we uh, we do want to learn more about uh, aging in, in rural Oregon. That's a big priority for us, but unfortunately that wasn't a part of the registering data. So we will have to wait until 2022 to be able to look at, for example, uh, really a kind of a gold standard data on you know, what percentage of the population is over 65 um, or you know, over 50 uh, in, in uh, various parts of the state. Well, Ethan, thank you so much. I think that was very informative. It was for me, for sure. Uh, so at this point, I'd like to turn it over to Ron Ekes, who will finish out the program. Thank you for attending today's program, and thank you, Director Sherigan. You've been listening to Ethan Sherrigan, director of Portland State University's Population Research Center, reviewing the results they've tabulated so far from the 2020 census. Oregon's population outpaced California in the last decade. Just one of the surprises from the headcount. And an amazing amount of data is still to come that will steer the course of public policy, zoning and construction plans, schools, and a great deal of the future of the state and its communities. KMUZ would like to thank Salem City Club for the audio recording to make this program. To hear the original recording of the presentation, see the City Club's archive at SalemCityClub.com. This is Community Radio KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting local news and public information for the Mid-Willamette Valley. This program is aired on Friday at noon and repeated Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 